I like the last paragraph too, Doma. All right. If I do the last paragraph, I want to get some pronunciations together. I think that's the only reason Shandine wanted me to read it. That is it. literally why I did it. <laughs> is it Alone? Aloni. Aloni. Yeah, basically. I'm yeah. A, watch me mess that up. <laughs> Mr. James lives with his family as a guest on unceded Alani land. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Dive In Justice, the podcast that explores building ideal communities with our less than ideal selves. I am Dom Jackson. And I'm Shandine Garcia. And today we have Paj James. We are so excited to spend some time with him. Not only is he super connected to the content, but he's also a poet, which as you all know, is one of my most favorite things in the whole world. So stay tuned. You're going to want to hear this. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So it's been about a week and a half since you and I last checked in. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Um, it was a whirlwind of a week, um, but I did manage to throw together uh, with my partner and I just had an extra friend or two join us um, to watch the Republican debate. And uh, <laughs> I cannot uh, believe that ooh. is your entertainment for the ooh. evening. Oh, that, are you serious? You I know. I know your love for news and I know your love for all things politics, but man... That's no, not no, throw like, up in your mouth the whole time. Oh, I mean, you do. You know, but you live with it. You get good at it. Um, one hand with the barf bag, you know? I couldn't do it. I'm not mad at you. There's, there's no... Um, you're not responsible uh, for watching it by any means. And I think we have to know ourselves and when we can lean into this kind of shit and when we need to lean out and walk away to be honest part of my anger right now is not around i mean obviously it's all around the like trump ridiculousness and all of the republican ridiculousness but why suddenly people um in the mainstream are paying attention to prison reform around the state (laughs) of the georgia fucking prison i i swear to god i just want to strangle humans nonstop. Uh and i thought if i then watched the debate I might literally strangle something, somebody. So society isn't safe right now if Mm -hmm. I double down. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I respect. I I hear that. It it was it did not escape. Um, It did not escape me that we just lost a brother in a jail cell in that jail. Right. Like a couple of weeks ago. And yeah. the state of that place, like, I can't help but think of, uh, it's like a down south Rikers in my mind. Um, and like you said, nobody cares until all of this comes to the fore. The mug shots. Oh, the mug shots. 
And my man, uh, Trump, already selling them online. You uh-huh, know? Uh-huh. 48 bucks a pop for a T-shirt with his mug shot on it. Um, but somebody took a bunch of images of Stanley Kubrick films uh-huh. and lined them all up, right? So you got my man from Clockwork Orange, uh, Full Metal Jacket. Yeah. You got that crazy dude. And then you got Jack Nicholson from The Shining. And all of them and Trump all lined up together. And it's all that same sort of facial expression, right, that we see in the mugshot. Um, and they were talking about how uh, Kubrick, Stanley Kubrick, uh, used this particular shot as a means of conveying that this is when a character has reached their ultimate um, downfall. Like they're yeah. just they're they're about to go full blown crazy. This is toward the end of the film. Yeah. Right. And so I appreciate it, whoever. I love, just like we were talking about with um, what happened now. Oh, yeah. uh, No, no. The Alabama. And down in Alabama, um, in Montgomery, the Montgomery Molly Wild. It's the same thing. Like the way we take these cultural icons and products and people just kind of play with them and line them up and make these larger points. Like I'm loving that. So there's so much to love in a moment like this. And I'm looking for as as somebody who loves history, I'm looking forward to the moment when I can look back on this time and its ridiculousness. Like, that's my hope. That's my optimism. Right. That I can talk to my grandkids and be like, hey, y'all, this shit was wild. Y'all should have been (laughs) here. You know, I know the difference is you really can lean in and appreciate the um, the depth of the products that are being produced with what's happening and the the satire that um, is is being manufactured to help people understand it, the 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 true comedic relief that's in it. Mm-hmm. I think I'm broken in some way. I just can't. <laughs> like it just hurts my heart. An example from from my world when um, Obama was elected, they had on the big screen the. Um, percentage of you know hispanic vote and asian vote and whatever Mm -hmm. and the bottom one was and then it said something else because you know native americans don't Mm -hmm. rate Mm -hmm. and so people Mm -hmm. my my people were putting a whole bunch of like t-shirts and mugs like i'm something else like we Mm -hmm. are the something else whatever and and i get it and i and i and i and i cheer that on and and my sister bought us all mugs that are like we are the something else we mm-hmm. are that like it took me a full two years before I could actually really truly like l- love it because it's mm-hmm. just so painful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, and I and I want it. I want to be able to lean in and cheer on even with the. I mean, I've been tracking that since you since you asked my opinion on the Alabama situation. I started mm-hmm. tracking and I chased the TikToks. I, you know, I'm, you know, as you know, my son banned me from TikTok because he says I'll just be sucked into a vortex that I'll never come out of. But I chased those TikToks and I looked at the memes and I looked at the. It's so painful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I. I would like to be able to lean in and and see the satire, see the parody, see the and and I I get the political impact. I just met um, or been working with an amazing native comedian named Joey Clift, and he does some amazing shorts on mm. Native Americans and having people see us, mm-hmm. and even those are painful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember asking you if you had started watching Reservation Dogs, and you had a similar 
um, response, right? Yeah. Like it's the too shit real. that made it real was too much. Yeah. yeah. I don't think, I think knowing your, your, your lane, so to speak, knowing your sensitivities and taking care of yourself is way more important than doing or engaging in it in a particular way. Right. Um, like I tell my kids all the time, you know, I'm a, my, if I'm not listening to my own music, it's usually NPR. But there are times where I'll look up and kind of notice like, oh, I've been leaning more into fantasy books on Audible or I'm leaning more into my music. And like right now I'm just in my Wu-Tang shit and I will not be shaken from that. And that's okay. Right. Because I'll look up and be like, I actually haven't listened to the news in a while. But I think that's my subconscious way of saying, hey, bro, slow down, take care of yourself because they, they'll drive you crazy. And so... I have my own version of what you're naming, too. I hear that. I think I think the pressure I feel is a little bit about what we recorded. Our last pod was around was around that um, imposter syndrome and needing to to be aware of the the most recent, the most important, the most um, so that when people ask me in particular about decolonization and land back and rematriate, like all these things. And I have a hard time listening to the latest pod on it and reading the latest article on it and, and read it. So when people ask me like, oh, did you, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't know that concept yet. Mm-hmm. I A, want to strangle them and B, want to strangle myself. Like, because you and I were talking about it when, when people ask you like, have you read the latest DEI book? And you're like, no, I'm fucking living it. Like, I don't have time mm-hmm. to read it. I'm living, mm-hmm. I'm trying to do it and live it. And the, and stuff is coming out at a galactic speed into mm-hmm. our inboxes and into our, and I, I want to alleviate the, 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 the inclination to want to strangle myself. Yeah. Like, even this morning I got up. And I was like, okay, you got to do it. You got you got to listen to a pod this morning on land and decal again. You have to do it. You have to do it. And what did I do? I hit it for about two minutes. Mm-hmm. Pressed pause and just turned on West Wing. Like, I just, yeah, I just yeah, yeah, couldn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's going to be moments, I imagine, right? There are moments where we voraciously consume and I'm reminded of something that a dear friend and colleague, Kavita, reminds me of all the time, right? Um, and I think she picked it up from spending time with Resma Menikin, right? But the idea that we have to nibble and not gorge. Mm. Right? I'm going to write that one down. And so that's from him to her to me to you. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Right. Um, And so when we're in that voracious space, go for it. Get it. You know, but you're not always going to be there. And that's okay. You shouldn't always be there. You know. Um, And I'll just say for me, the comedy piece has been a refuge. Yeah. For me since I was a kid. Um, the violence in the community I grew up in as it began to escalate um, I knew I wasn't supposed to listen to Richard Pryor at that age but my parents had the 8-track and I would go in the basement and turn it super low and so I would have to listen to it with my 
with my head up to the ear, up to the uh, speaker. And when there were times where I just felt like I needed it. Yeah. Well, you you, you bring in Boondocks, Chappelle mm-hmm. and Chris Rock often mm-hmm. and the um, lessons from those that are still alive in mm-hmm. what we're navigating today are pretty powerful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, his album, Is It Something I Said? This is before you could get on demand. This is no Spotify. There's no, this is right. pre-Napster. This is, <laughs> there's no internet yet. Okay. <laughs> so it was the only comedy on demand yeah. that I had access to. And so to the point where, yeah, I had the whole album memorized. And then my parents knew I would go to school and do parts of Richard Pryor's routine. And I'm like in the fourth grade, fifth grade, and it died. the shit I was saying I didn't even understand right, like, right but, but you were doing it but I was doing it um, but no so I think I think I formed a bond with what felt like a type of escapism but not completely yeah because there's always an analysis there's a commentary there's speaking truth to power even in you know these jokes especially in these jokes really right and so i mean yeah i've done workshops about the history of black comedy um back when i was in undergrad post undergrad like it's it's a refuge for me but i understand the sensitivity um i understand the risk involved in making light around things that are very painful too you know um there were episodes of the boondocks that depending on what was going on in my life were harder to absorb because maybe they hit too close to home. But that's, that's, yeah, that's That's where I'm at. Yeah. What's going on with you? Well, my child, my baby boy, who I'm sure I'm glad they don't listen to the pod because they'd be so mad and have to like all the things that I reference and, 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 and share about them. So I'm lucky that, they're like mom that's your life you do your thing um he my baby boy he's 20 and he is hopping in a vehicle right now and in route to me Mm. so he's driving from oregon all the way down and i'm just i am chomping at the bit of course he won't turn his like whatever the thing is on your phone so i can track of course he won't Mm -hmm. like you know and it'll be like pulling teeth to get the updates from him but i just oh i just can't wait to see him so that's Mm -hmm. that's part Mm of it i'm Mm -hmm. i'm I'm super excited and thinking about that but you know what's been in my mind a lot lately is um i've been i've been thinking about love a lot um Mm -hmm. particularly you know, we just we recorded recently with our beloved Jonah, and he was talking a lot about how no one is disposable. Mm-hmm. And what does that call on us if we if we believe that? And most people who know me, I, I talk not a ton about love, but I definitely talk about the belief that love is free. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and when and when when I give that love and if it's not received in a particular way or they or they don't know how to respond to them, I'm like it's not that's not on me love is free I get to I get to whatever you want to call it kind generosity whatever people can make fun of me like I never I never know where my vehicles are because half the time people are using them and people give me a hard time doesn't matter love is free love is free um and I was having a deeper conversation around love with a friend of mine as we were talking about loving accountability. And he said, I get what you mean when you say love is free. I understand what you mean when you say love is love is the answer. I understand all of that. I, however, think the cost of loving accountability for you, he was talking about me in particular, is high and that we don't talk about that enough. And so when we talk about loving accountability for, for maybe some of our listeners, it is what does it mean to um, call someone in to some responsibility and learning and evolution to help them uh, interrupt the impact that they're having regardless of their intention? Mm-hmm. And and, and some some example and, and 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 loving accountability a lot of people think is is really clean and straightforward but it's really messy very and 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 to give an example a, a couple examples one of mine and actually one of yours Delma um, a few years ago I, I left the Oregon Department of Education we were doing a lot of covid 19 um, response for the state I um, mean it was very hard and very powerful very important work. And on a high level call, um, I was called a savage, and it was, I remember it, was that. it killed me. It killed me. It was the straw. It wasn't the thing, but it was definitely the straw. Yeah. And there were a lot of layers to what happened on that. And one of my a, a person who I thought was a very close dear friend could not show up for me. She said she was scared. And the amount of loving accountability it took to help us find our way back to a loving relationship mm-hmm. was so heavy. And it wasn't beautiful. It wasn't me calm, listening and holding space. It was me crying and saying, must be nice that your fear of my anger like took priority while I was laying on the ground bleeding and you're mm-hmm. watching me bleed and you're saying, sorry, I'm just scared. Sorry, I'm just scared. So, right? And like the yelling and the, and the crying and the pain and the, all of it as we worked our way back toward mm-hmm. what I was trying to call her into was messy. And my friend is like, sure, in your mind, love is free, but the cost for you. Hmm. So that's like an example. Another example, um, you, Delma, did a really beautiful thing holding one of your, um, you were essentially called a slave Hmm. by a colleague. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And your grace and your strength in being steadfast and holding this person and your team and modeling it for your team into accountability around what this person said, the cost on you, mm-hmm. the amount of space it took up in your head, in your heart, in your home, with your family, with your colleagues, with like all that you had to do. That's just not fucking free. Mm-hmm. That is mm-hmm. not free. Like how you show up, you get to like give that and that that you're giving freely, but the cost. And so what that made me think about 
based on our last and I've been I've been thinking about this for the for days. Our last call we were talking about how hard it is to price deliverables for what we offer the people we work with. Like mm-hmm. how do we decide if we charge 75 an hour or 100 an hour or 400 an hour based on what the deliverable is? And some of the deliverables are tangible like a facilitator agenda and 90 minutes you know of a session on equity as praxis. We don't charge for, for example, I'm on an internal team and, and, and for people who are on my teams, I'm on six teams right now. So if you're feeling guilty about, you think I'm talking about you, you, you do that, you do that what you will. I'm not going to name you. It could be that team. It could be another team. Um, the amount of energy that I willingly put in to help hold a team member or two with loving accountability toward their growth and what they need to or should be doing or need to be called into doing. And they're, and they're showing up with beauty and love and grace and that's good. But I'm not paid for that. I'm paid for the deliverable I'm doing to my client, not this internal teamwork. And at the end of it, I'm just exhausted. I'm so tired. I'll go downstairs and turn Sade up as loud as I can, lay in the middle of the living room floor, literally, like this is my go-to behavior, and just soak my senses into something else to try to recover from the, you know, your heart rate goes up and your palms get sweaty and you're leaning in and your, 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 your shoulders are at your ears as you're holding this person. Like you can do, you're okay. I'm not indicting you. Let's talk a little bit more about the cost is so fucking real. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how we, I I, I don't want to charge for it. But there's something there, and I, I can't. I haven't figured it out. I haven't worked it out. I'm just like so. So what's going on for me right now? My kids coming toward me. I'm trying to make sense of my belief that love is free, alongside loving accountability, and I can't figure it out yet. And mm. and I'm and I, I don't. I don't know that we need to transition this second to our speaker, but um, our speaker had like a couple years ago. He had this quote, and I have it because I screenshot it and I look at it all the time. And it's, we always have the right to do what is right. Love is the only law. Hmm. Mm-hmm. The cost of that law in loving accountability, I don't know how to talk about. Hmm. I don't know. I'm, I'm struggling with the navigation of that right now. I'm not going to pull back from it. I'm not going to not um, continue to help us show up with love in these places. But I'm struggling with the physical toll, mainly because a friend of mine said, damn, Shandine, that's a that's a heavy weight all the time. And and what can we do to be kinder to our bodies when we're in it? Mm-hmm. And for me, it's like, oh, give me some more playlists, because at this point, I have every single Sade song memorized <laughs> in my soul. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the drugs and alcohol can only help so much, too. For real, right? So, Edibles and vodka will only get me so far. Get you so far, <laughs> you know. Um, that's real. Yeah, no, that's real. I mean, I have I have 
to invite us to bring that conversation because you know what I'm I'm rooting for season four. I know, and that you're gonna just kill me, man. You are gonna kill me four. for season, season four. Season four has to be love. That's the meta theme for season four. So this conversation is one we'll have to continue to revisit there. Um I almost wanna like you know the instinct I have is Yes, to like, I do. I wanna solve it. I, I wanna give you the right answer and then everything will be fixed and you'll be fine and forever grateful. Um, <laughs> that's a little that's, much. I don't know. <laughs> no, I mean like you'll write love poems <laughs> to me. <laughs> um, love limericks. Yeah, love limericks to me. Um, have me on a t-shirt like Trump's mugshot. But I think there's um, there's something to be said for the rhythm, the cadence, and. For me, I part of my work is figuring out where do I have the resources, where do I have the energy, and when I don't, can I unapologetically name that and give myself space to recoup, right? And if you're exhausted, um, then the body... And I'm I'm riffing off of my partner. This is something Rita says all the time. Like, what is what is your body asking for? You know, and how do we begin to to listen better, and then honor that unapologetically? You know, because we will move the world while you rest, and if you don't understand that, right then there's some hubris there that I, I'm going to have that, to... But I get that. Let's, let's ask the tougher question. Even if we're 100% rested, yeah. loving accountability still is a cost. Mm-hmm. I don't disagree. And I, I, I need to figure out a way to... Charge for it. No. Oh, sorry. I thought that's where we were going. Maybe. <laughs> See? <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I um, I don't know. It's yeah, it's clunking around, and I and I'm, you know, my my friend is like, that's probably why you're single. I was like, go fuck yourself. <laughs> like that's Aww. like the meanest thing a person could say. <laughs> I mean, I haven't meaning to talk to you about that, but later, <laughs> season four, season you four. You know, honestly, mm-hmm. Rita's um, invitation around mm-hmm. body work over the mm-hmm. to me for the past two years has been one of the single most helpful things. Mm. Um, mm. I mean, more than, uh, you know, the many quotes and lessons that I have on, like the sticky notes that I have all around me that remind me things more than, no, they're helpful. Trust me, I've got yours right here. I've got yours right I wish here. you would just come into the 21st century. I know. That's all. I, I like writing it down physically. Right, right. <laughs> um. Even if I don't slow the pace or be kinder to myself or whatever, the practice for the past two years mm-hmm. of just like, oh, that's in my back and just dropping my shoulders for just a moment. The mm-hmm. practice of taking a pause and a breath, right, from Jonah is is great. You know, Scott's constant like morning lessons of entering your day 
in a particular way, all of those, especially the past, I almost want to say three years, um, have been helpful. I haven't changed necessarily the pace or the work, mm-hmm. but it but it f- has a different hue, if you will, because yeah. of that. And and I am grateful to that. And I'm like Rita in particular, her constant reminders about the body mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, have impacted not just me, but the ripples of the beloveds around me and my children. Mm. And I get I get that uh, that some things will not be in my lifetime. I get that. And I sure. get what we're seeding for generations to come. I understand the mending of the ark and. Damn, it's good to actually think about, oh, there's a reason my back is hurting right there in this moment. Or there's a reason the, the nausea in my stomach is, um, is, is spiking. Mm-hmm. And, and, mm-hmm. and to hear that has been, uh, you know, is, I don't know, is, is another example of just love being embodied in particular ways. And I, and I am grateful. I'm That's grateful. What's, uh, I, yeah. I'm sure she's going to be happy to hear that too. <laughs> um, that's what's up. Um, I'll just say this and then we'll transition. Yeah. Um, three years ago, roughly, is when you met me. You're welcome. When we come back, we are excited to bring in our guest, Taz James, joining us. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Diamond Justice Alyssa. We recognize that your time is the most valuable currency you have. If you're digging the pod, there are a couple things you can do to show your support. First, head over to your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds of your time. And every review helps us grow our listenership and broadens the conversations we can have together. The second thing you can do and should do is consider supporting the podcast by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash dot underscore in underscore justice. Welcome back. Um, We are so excited to have our guest to join us today as Shandine and I were preparing to... um, put this season together several months ago we were talking and Taj's name came up pretty quickly um, due to the nature of the trajectory of his career path and so the questions he's been asking himself the questions he's asking the rest of us to ask ourselves the offerings the poetry all of it contributes to some of the very meta issues we're continuously grappling with and so it's definitely a pleasure to meet this brother and an honor to have him join us um i want to read his bio and then formally bring him into this space uh taj james is a father a poet a practitioner strategist designer and philanthropic and capital advisor he is the founder and former director of the movement strategy center curator at Full Spectrum Labs and principal at Full Spectrum Capital Partners. He is an official dance instructor at the intersection of wild possibility and urgent practicality, where play 
and unleashed potential find each other. Now, if that doesn't summarize what we're trying to figure out this season, I don't know what does. So I love the phrasing there. Written like a poet. Written like a poet. Oh, man. Um, Mr. James lives with his family on unceded Ohlone land, known by many as Okanda or Oakland, California. He's a proud trickster, undercover mystic, aspiring hote, longtime Zen practitioner, and a son of a Baptist minister and a keeper of the sacred feminine. Mr. Taj James, thank you so much for taking time to be here with us and welcome uh, to Dive in Justice. Such a such an honor and a joy to be here with you both and get a chance to to hear you all um, be in relationship with each other in the ways that you are. Um, and, uh, and yeah, just sort of allow us all to be a part of uh, the this journey that you're on. So very, very happy to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. As, as you know, the meta theme of this pod is, is the idea of the trade-off we make or don't make around our values and capitalism and trying to move the needle a little bit on change mm. we're trying to make in the world. So wondering if you could talk to us and our listeners about the work that you do and maybe how you navigate some of those waters. I'm assuming, we're assuming, and maybe we're making too big of an assumption, that you also navigate the waters around the values and capitalism and change. So maybe maybe I'm wrong, but... Yeah, yeah, no. Um, so our, our friends at uh, Movement Generation Justice and Ecology Project have this this uh, saying that um, transition is the practice of navigating contradictions. So we are, I, I understand myself to have come into the world at a very particular moment in in human history that, that in some in, in some sense, you could say we're kind of living through the end of an age and, and whether it's like 5,000 years or 500 years, there were, you know, there, there was, there was some things that happened in, in human culture a while ago that we're, we're kind of um, dealing with the consequence of. So, so one was just this sort of, sort of idea this, that, that had not occurred to anyone before in human history. And it was probably the worst idea that anyone ever had, but this notion that like human beings, are separate and superior to nature and that human beings are male and nature is female. Worst idea in the history of humanity. Right. And you, and, and essentially if, when you, when you, that, that um, the lie of separation, supremacy, scarcity, and singularity, as I like to to think, think, as I understand it, um, it, it kind of set us down on a path. Um, and then about 500 years ago, uh, there was this notion that not only are humans separate and superior to nature and that human beings are male and nature is female. Human beings are male and white and nature is uh, female and non-white or, or, or very specifically black and indigenous, right? Um, and uh, yeah, so 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 uh, if you build a global situ- civilization around a lie, the, the notion then that civilization will at some point collapse, and we are we are living in the midst of that collapse. Uh, we've set Mother Earth aflame, we've set the world on fire, uh, and everything's burning, you know. And some things are burning fast, and some things are burning slow, but it's getting hotter and hotter, and everything is burning. 
for me, you know, com- coming into the world and trying to understand the nature of existence and love and suffering, I was like, oh, okay, this, this, from a pretty young age, I was, I kind of felt like the world was not a terribly good place. And I was like, well, whoever brought me here, please take me back to wherever I came from. Cause I'm not sure I even want to be here. Um, but, but, but my, my childhood response was like, okay, well, if I'm here, I'll try to fix it. Pain, harm, suffering that I experienced be, be transmitted to others that I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to pass that along. And that, and that kind of became my, my, um, my mission, my purpose, my, my prime directive. And, and, you know, went, went through my life with that as kind of my core principle. And so, you know, got involved in the work of social change, you know, people didn't really know what they wanted. They, we knew what we were against, but people couldn't really tell you what they were for. And when we looked at the way that we were doing our work, the way that we were doing our work in no way kind of reflected the values of the world we said we wanted to live in. And we, and we didn't really know how to collaborate very effectively to do big things. Right. So, 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 you know, I was a community organizer. I had an existential crisis. I went to South Africa to try to figure out something. And then I spent a bunch of time in a Buddhist monastery with a bunch of Vietnamese Buddhist monks out of which, because at that point, and this, and this was this was before Movement Strategy Center, you know, I thought I knew a lot of things, and then I realized I didn't know anything. Know anything, and I said, okay, I got to start over. And um, and you know, it, it, what I came out of the monastery with two things, like uh, only two. I like only knew two, two things: be kind and pay attention. But the be kind part was very specific because what I realized was that I had spent my whole life like trying to fix the world for everybody else. But I had left myself out of the circle of concern and care. And the thing that I realized about love is that if I was not extending it to myself first, (laughs) I didn't have it to give. What I was giving was, was generous, but it was not... The, it was not the kinds of transformative love that I could offer because if I don't give it to myself first, if I'm not kind to myself first, I will behave in ways that are unkind to others. <laughs> um, knowingly and unknowingly, right? And so this question of like, you know, as you all are grappling with this, this, this question of like, loving accountability, right? And, and, and disentangling those two things because the, you know, what would it look like if the loving accountability is first to ourselves? And can we bring loving accountability to anyone else if we haven't found the support, gotten the support, set the boundaries that we need to set so that we can have and bring that for, for ourselves? And I think that, that, was the, that was the hardest lesson for me and remains the hardest lesson. I, you know, I, it, is, it is one we all, many of us str- struggle with who based on our early survival strategies, we try to make ourselves in the world safe by like helping other people to get what they need. Right. Yes. Pause. How do you, yes. How do you balance the, um, well, first let me back up. I want to say thank you for how you opened around why we're at this moment at the time of the clock of the world right now. The way you articulated is is um, comes extremely close to um, the way a, a 
a friend of mine and I are trying to frame something, which is, you know, the, the step one to destroying the planet is to decouple us from land, water, energy, right? Step two is then to dehumanize the people who disagree mm-hmm. with it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. and what does that mean? It means normalizing terminology like resources and conservation and opportunity, right? And and mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. step two is like, then it means then you you create and implement a trajectory of dehumanizing indigenous people and brown and black bodies through policies, practices, behavior, all the things. And so your framing of that was, was so helpful in terms of where, of of this work that that we're trying to do. So I just want to say thank you to that. In terms of the, how do we hold, how do we look at loving accountability for ourselves first if if there mm-hmm. is an order, my question mm-hmm. is, we could spend the rest of our lives doing that before we get to the yeah. help or the, yeah. and I don't mean the solve, yeah. before we get to actually, act, when is, are they parallel tracks that we're doing? Are they, you do this for month on month off? Like what is your, in your brain, how do you approach that uh, paradox? Yeah. yeah. So, so I think the, the p- part of the way, you know, the work I do now is called full spectrum and it, and it comes out of a poem. Every binary is a spectrum. Every spectrum is a wheel and a web and a spiral, except when it's not on the road to awareness default to complexity and paradox. Because we live in a culture that's a binary culture that defaults to linear, uh, linear binaries, n- Logical, non-paradoxical, linear binaries. That is the that is that is the heart of colonial binary culture. Um, so default to complexity and paradox. Meaning, even if you don't experience it, assume <laughs> that contradictory things are true. Sure. <laughs> that reality itself is fundamentally paradoxical and contradictory. Right. That and you and that and that the truth is about navigating those those tensions. So the the, the one thing that you're naming, which which was sort of the, it was the the second phase of this process, this transitions initiative process that you uh, were a part of, um, which was really about this this debate that was happening within social change movements, essentially between the healers and cultural bearers and and the and the organizers, and the healers and cultural bearers would kind of say, hey. We have to heal. We cannot transform the systems that are that are harming us until we heal first. And the organizers are saying, we don't have time to do that. We need if we don't transform the systems, then we're going to continue to be harmed by those systems. So how do we heal from historical trauma, current trauma, future trauma? We got to stop the trauma if we're going to heal. And so it was this kind of false binary debate. And and essentially what emerged out of that engagement in the community was this this notion of the like the two pathways of deep democracy and beloved community which is like this as bell hooks talked about it like what happens at the intersection of power and pain because it is true that it is true that like why don't we have more power to transform systems because we're disconnected from ourselves and each other what disconnects ourselves from ourselves and each other systemic historical accumulated and ongoing violence violence disconnects us from our power so part of like uh, not just navigating the contradictions of the collapsing economic system that we're in, <laughs> but part of what we have to do in just asserting and embodying a different way of being is to simply value the sake, value what is sacred, to recognize what is sacred and to value it. 
So let me ask you this then. I think if I'm picking up what you're putting down, it is part of the question is how do we return resources? How do we move resources in a way where the things that we hold a special are more in alignment with capital because we're in the capitalist system? Well, I think here's, here's what I would say about this system that we're in, right? That always in all times, the, the, the cultural and economic system that, that is dominant wants to tell you that there's nothing else beyond that. And the reality is there always has been and there always will be. There are many systems. There are many worlds that exist. And some are visible and some are less visible, right? Um, some are acknowledged and some are unacknowledged. So the first thing we have to do is we have to kind of um, acknowledge that, that there is a lot more than this system wants us to see and recognize. Because if we see and recognize it, right, if we water different seeds, those seeds will grow and expand, which is why this system spends a lot of energy. If there's a seed of something new that emerges, it will use a tremendous amount of force to try to stamp that out. So there are right now all around the world and in lots of places, people who are rematriating land to create retreat centers and healing villages and grow food and do all kinds of wonderful things. And, you know, uh, in a few weeks, I'm going to be headed to, to the Standing Rock tribe to work with our partners there who were we're helping to build a utility scale wind farm, which is going to generate hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue for um, for uh, for Standing Rock. And they're going to use that to grow regenerative agriculture. And they're going to use that to build housing. And they're going to use that to create um, uh, cultural institutions, right? Because they, by having some uh, negotiated stewardship over land and territory and then being able to generate your own energy and that energy giving you a source of revenue and resources where you can be the investor in your own vision and your own solutions now you start to build a certain kind of economic sovereignty that can can support your cultural political and land sovereignty Right. So, so that that is the that is that is what's happening in so many places right now, and it's and it's very very powerful and exciting. sort of mm-hmm. work that you're naming. I appreciate the mm-hmm. example of the work you're doing in Standing Rock. Um, that is a, a concrete example where I can kind of see a trajectory of here's where we are, here's where we want to go, and here's how we see ourselves getting there um, in terms of sovereignty, economic, both economic and land. I'm wondering about a place like my hometown. Um, I'm based in Flint, Michigan. 
mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. given its particular history, given its um, connection to city, state, government, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there are pockets of builders, obviously, and especially coming out of something like a a crisis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Flint has a long history of multiple crises one following and building on the next and so you there's a there's that component but what that component lends itself to is a population of people who know how to build right mm-hmm. and so there's mm-hmm. a, a push pull there there are definitely mm-hmm. opportunities there um but it's a very different situation from some other areas um, and so just yeah. thinking, I don't know that I even have a particular question. I think I'm just mulling over how do you, fr- and I'm using this term loosely, right? What is yeah. it to franchise this? Yes. Yeah. This idea, yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I think it's a, re- it's a, it's a really powerful question and it's starting to happen in a lot of ways. And, and I, and I would say a lot of the folks doing this work have been deeply influenced by the experience in Detroit. Because Detroit was a, was a you know post industrial city, um, the state abandoned the people, the, the corporations abandoned the people. Just you know, as far as the eye can see, abandoned houses, abandoned lots, and the people said, you know, uh, we're on our own. <laughs> no one's going to come and help us. We got to figure this out. So what do they do? They started growing food, and what do they do? They started creating worker co ops, and what do they do? They started figuring out how to take care of themselves and each other when when everybody else left and the work of the bog center um which was sort of Mm -hmm. uh, central to that was very has been very influential like it's it's essentially like we're all part of that franchise many of us who are working in because we were deeply influenced by the, the 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 efforts that the people of detroit made and black people in particular to to figure out you know, how do we take ourselves, take care of ourselves when we can't count on the state mm-hmm. and we can't count on the auto companies and we can't count on anybody else but ourselves? What do we do? And, you know, there, there are a lot of folks, you know, in different places across Turtle Island and across the world who've been in that situation for a while. <laughs> nobody, they, nobody showed up in the first place. People have been on their own for, for as long as you can remember. And the only way people have survived is by leaning on each other to thrive so so but but the geographies of that and the contours of that are very 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 important so the word i'll just you know point to a few other places so you know buffalo uh, you know buffalo new york a, a, a situation in, in a situation in some way similar to to um what folks in detroit went through and there was a small community organizing group called push buffalo and they just started going to auctions and buying up all these, you know, empty lots and old houses when nobody wanted them, they worth weren't anything, and they built a fifty-block green zone, mm-hmm. and they, you know, took over an old elementary school, they bought up a bunch of old housing, they, you know, greened it all out. They're training, you know, workforce programs to train force folks in the community to, to 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 do the weatherization, to do all the things. So, so push is one of the other places, and Buffalo is another places that's been a big inspiration for folks, um, you know, in a lot of places, but in particular in the, in the, in the Rust Belt in the Northeast, um, Spartanburg, South Carolina, um, another really powerful story there. Um, uh, state Senator Harold Washington, who was just a, you know, member of his community. He was sick. His family members were sick. They realized that everyone in their neighborhood was being poisoned by all of the toxins from the heavy industries that were in the community, you know, 
took a $15 million, uh, $15,000 EPA grant and brought in $300 million of investment into his community to clean up all the toxic waste, create a federally qualified health clinic, build affordable housing for the community to kind of just say, hey, we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to clean this mess up and we're going to build things that our community you know, can manage and own and direct for ourselves. L- last story I'll tell is um, you know, the heart of Black L.A., Crenshaw, Los Angeles um, community there. Um, in the historic Black Arts District, did a successful campaign to uh, to get the city to put a transit station. Uh, you know, because Los Angeles didn't have a subway system. Now they do. They got one right in the heart of of, 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 of Crenshaw. And what happens is when you get a when you get a transit station in the middle of a neighborhood, is now it becomes very quickly unaffordable. Right? It, it's just a gentrification driver. So. So there was a campaign, this 40 acres and a mall campaign for the people to essentially acquire um, the, the sort of largest real estate development um, effort in the middle of – in Los Angeles. Um, and instead of you know saying, oh, a developer is going to do this and we'll try to get some jobs, we'll try to get some community benefits, the community itself organized to raise the money, buy the land, um, and, and sort of – turn the turn the mall into a cultural eco healing village right um right so 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 there's a lot more to that story but sure. you know I, I could i could go on and on and on but the, the the thing that um the work that i get a chance to support across a lot of different communities is 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 moving forward really really powerfully um and again like the the, the people who are you know there's powerful stories from memphis um, from Jackson, um, Mississippi, from New Orleans, you know the the people doing this work are culturally rooted, spiritually grounded, and they're and they're doing it um, kind of rooted in this this vision of beloved community and this vision of like how do we create a, a new way of living together that 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 heals the harm that's been done over the last five hundred and five thousand years. And and allows us to find a new way forward um, in the midst of the crises that we're navigating. I'm going to ask this badly, so I'm going to try to articulate something, and then Delma's going to help me out. I think if I can't if I can't um, land this question well, my beginning was in K twelve education. I was a teacher and a principal, and and I believe deeply in curriculum reform um deeply in it uh i'm i'm an unabashed curriculum theorist like like the most boring thing in the world to study is curriculum theory and i swear to god i just i'll eat that for lunch how do you um and, and the reason it matters to me is because at the, at the base of curriculum theory is what we put in front of youth is a pre is the beginning to like what we're hoping they're going to manifest in terms of like humanity later in the world. Right. Like, like what we think is the most, you've got all of these options of what, of a, what a student can study and and think about and and what a a teacher can help steward the learning around. And, and they have all of these choices and this is what they choose to put in front of a seven-year-old, right. A a 22-year-old, um, and I think a lot about everything that you are saying and our beloveds are saying and that what 
what we want. We want those concepts to be in front of right children and youth of today. Mm-hmm. How do you reconcile the fact that um, and I, I, I have privilege. And so 90% of your words that you're using are inaccessible to a lot of people who mm-hmm. like deep in, in community. How do we get the education system, if you will, to understand or even grapple with what I would call are like, I mean, $10 million concepts. I mean, they're huge concepts that you're, that you're, they're, they're, they're earth rooted concepts. How do you reconcile with the, the work that you're doing? Um, not necessarily um, landing inside uh, my, my father's ability to articulate it or, you know, as a, as a, as a farmer or my, or my, his neighbor, who he talks about, yeah, you know, he, yeah. he tells me all the time, like, I hear you. I can't talk about that to my neighbors, Mejita. Like you have to right, give me right. language, right? And he's like, and once you give right. me language, how is that going to get into the schools? How are they going to learn? How is it going to get in the teacher preparation programs? How is it going to get into, yeah. and then I'm stuck and I just look at him. Cause he's like, I can read decolonizing methodologies with you, Mejita, but I can't talk to other yeah, people yeah. about it. Yeah. I think um, it's a really, really potent and important question. A, a couple things come to mind. So um, another uh, offering from our friends at Movement Generation is the heart learns what the hands do. So I am less inclined to ask someone to um, read a book or listen to me talk or um, or uh, or listen to a podcast even. <laughs> But but to say, hey, come over, here's a hammer, there's a nail. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? Right? Because that's a barn and we're growing food. Well, why are we growing food? Because in the community meeting on Wednesday, everyone said they wanted to they wanted more food because people are hungry, so we're making food. That's the conversation. If that's not the conversation, like that's the work. That's the level at which the work is happening. The, the, there's lead in the water. How do we get lead out of the water? Here's what the lead in the water is doing to our kids. How do we get it out, right? Uh, the fire is coming. How do we stop it, right? The people are hungry. How do we feed them? But, but there's, there's a way in which in any process, there are, there are kind of um, technical aspects to any problem you're solving. And the engineers have to talk to each other. And the carpenters have to talk to each other. And the electricians have to talk to each other. But if you're, if you're, if you're building homes in a community, Someone has to say, well, how do we want these homes? What, what, do we, what do we do in these homes? Like, how do we want these homes to be organized so that they, they support us to live and relate in the ways that we want to live? And that should be, as Malcolm would say, like a make it plain conversation. Yeah. <laughs> the very system I want to interrupt has brought me things mm. that I care for deeply. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. There are so many problematic aspects to the world that I move through that I have learned to love and mm. will fight you <laughs> if you come for me and come to take those things from me. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. My creature comforts, so to speak. I want to see the world changed. And I recognize in some ways I'm very comfortable with the way the world is. And I don't know how always how to reconcile those. And I'm wanting to invite you into a question around where do you see yourself, if at all, right? Mm-hmm. Where do you see yourself still grappling with some of those sorts of questions? I'm a child of this world while trying to envision another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Mr. B, 
um, recent ancestor, Mr. Harry, Harry Belafonte, mm, um, mm-hmm. he has this song "Turn the World Around," and it, and it's sort of my a constant a constant uh, prayer. Um, do I know who I am? Do I know who you are? Do we see each other clearly? Do we know who we are? When we think about ourselves in this sort of 14-generation arc, right, seven generations back, seven generations forward, my, my sense of hubris of like, oh, I've got to fix the world, right, as this, as this person, this separate person. No, I am a drop in the ocean and an ocean in the drop, as Rumi said, right? Like I am hugely insignificant and I am everything, right? You are everything and everything is you. So this paradox of this – the agency paradox – of like our insignificance and our complete significance is, is one that I grapple with all the time. And it's very easy for me to get that slightly wrong in one direction or another, right? <laughs> to overstate my importance or understate my importance. Both of those things dishonor my ancestors and my descendants. Mm-hmm. Both of those things. Because I have responsibility to the people who loved and struggled and laughed and failed and did all the things that they could do so that I could be here in this moment talking to you. And I have responsibility to my descendants to come. Mm -hmm. Right. And they are counting on me. Right. And I just have to, I just have to show up for this moment with you with as much like love presence, grace for you and myself as I can, and just be in relationship and see what happens. It is a never ending and constant, constant practice. Um, and I think as you all um, powerfully uh, embody in your conversations and how you show up here, being honest about, you know, where it's breaking down and where we're not being the person we want to be and, and, and just affirming that, like, I get to be a human being. Because that was another thing that really messed me up. I was like, okay, this system says as a black person, I'm not a human being, Right. Okay, in order to prove I'm a human being, I need to be perfect because if I'm not perfect and that reinforces the lie of the system that I'm not a human being, so I don't allow myself to make a mistake mm-hmm. because I internalize the notion that like if I do something wrong or if I do something harmful, then that reinforces the lie about myself yeah. and my people that I've been told, right? So so just how revolutionary it is to just allow ourselves like all the parts to be to be seen to be to be embraced and to be a part of our humanity right and and for that to be true and that's the core principle of beloved community like to extend that love and that grace and that recognition of everyone's humanity right i think i almost want a bigger word than revolutionary for that because it is it is so revolutionary i keep finding um i get you know, annoyed with this path that Delma has invited uh, us into um, just, you know, for a variety of reasons. And oftentimes after we record, I have what I call a recording hangover because I, um, I'm, I'm terrified about the public, you know, hearing this. Yet once the recording hangover goes away, I feel 10 times lighter for having confessed Here's where I'm right. Here is where I'm quote unquote a shitty person. But guess what? Doesn't make me a shitty person, right? As we at the top of every single episode where we reveal, I feel lighter. 
And I know that like in and of itself, if, if to go back to what you're saying, that lightness allows me to be able to show up for my boys, allows me to be able to, and like, and so revel, the word revolutionary, almost like it doesn't hold the enormity of the incredibility Mm. of what I, I want it to hold. But for lack of a better word, I do believe it's revolutionary. And I do believe, um, love holds that and 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 i'm really hope we're really hoping you'll come back to season four and help us unpack that because the layers of hubris and ego and like what that means to truly love in that way the self so that we can you know do the whatever you want to call it the work the 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 change the the mechanism the the, the relationship the community the connection to land we can't do that if we don't actually learn how to have that love that um interrupting that habit pattern right to use our mm-hmm. beloved you know norma's language to, to 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 interrupt that so that our default is reconditioned to something to something stronger and so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm just so appreciative of you laid down about 2,700 concepts in this, <laughs> um, wind, in this small window that we have. We just, we really hope you'll come back for season four. Yeah. I'd love to hang out with y'all anytime. Dive in Justice is a co-production of the Center for Whole Communities and Shoreline Consulting. The Center for Whole Communities exists to build capacity at the individual, organizational, and community level to deepen awareness, embrace differences, and value relationships, thus making change possible. Shoreline Consulting co-constructs solutions and strategies that align with your goals and leverages the voices, perspectives, and wisdom of those who stand to benefit. For more information on Center for Whole Communities, find us at wholecommunities.org. For more information on Shoreline Consulting, visit us at thinkshorelines.com. Dive in Justice theme song created by Nasir Thomas Jackson. Original music throughout today's episode created by Dana and Alden. Check out their debut album, Brothers on Spotify. Jenny Cotting helps us out with marketing and promotions. Thank you all so much. Without your effort, this show would not be possible.